This is The Burning Zone. I'm Coleman Luck. As we live our lives, we come to forks in the road. At those moments, the paths lead off into very different directions. When we reach one of those forks, the decision we make changes everything forever, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. In my life at various times, I've chosen right and wrong directions. In particular, for years, I knew that someone was waiting for me at one of those forks up ahead, and I didn't want to go there to meet him. Tonight, I want to start by reading two full chapters uh, from the New Testament. And we're going to begin with chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved by godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child which she was, when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand by which, it, which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he had received, who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. 
out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, and have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, and to those who have been trained by it. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make, them make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people, and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood and the sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I, sh I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. A kingdom which cannot be shaken. Uh, that's what the writer says we are receiving. Uh, now, there's no kingdom in this world that cannot be shaken, is there? So the writer is telling us that this permanent, eternal kingdom is unlike anything in all of human history. Every other kingdom will pass away, but not this one. But honestly, I want to ask the question, do you believe that the kingdom of heaven is real? Do you believe it's real the way in which it's described in the New Testament? I think most serious Christians would say, you know, of course, yes, of course, it's, it's in the Bible. We have an obligation to believe that it's real. 
Now, I think that's sort of the attitude that an awful lot of us take. And that is pretty weak belief. If we truly believe that the kingdom of heaven is real, that it's coming as the Bible teaches, wouldn't it change our lives? I think all of our values would be transformed. What the average person considers valuable in this world, we would count of little worth because according to what we just read, it is about to pass away. In light of that kingdom, how we make our life decisions would undergo a drastic change, would change, wouldn't it? Sadly, the truth is for most of us that our belief in the kingdom of God has little influence over what we consider to be the practical issues of our lives. But according to what Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is so real, so wonderful, and so infinitely valuable that a person who discovered it would give anything he or she possessed in this world. They would sell anything they owned to possess that kingdom. Most of all, if we truly believe that the kingdom of heaven is real, and it is ours because of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, in the middle of terrible times, when we are deeply suffering, when our dreams are dashed, and when all hope seems to be gone, our eyes would be fixed on that kingdom, that city, and its king. In 1722, Daniel Defoe published one of his classic novels. That novel was entitled A Journal of the Plague Year. It purported to be an eyewitness account of what happened in London in 1665 when the Black Death struck that city. Though it was fiction, Defoe's skill was so great that most of his readers thought the novel was an actual journal written by the central character. Over half a century had passed since the terrors of the plague, but the memories still burned deep. The novel is a harrowing account of what happens when the world turns upside down, when what seems like endless death strikes a city and no one knows where it comes from or how to stop it. Over the years, I've read many books about the scourge of disease and other catastrophes and how they've shaped history. As a novelist and a dramatist myself, I'm fascinated by what happens when the thin veneer of, of socialization disintegrates and the truth about the human race bubbles out, out, up out of the darkness of our souls. In particular, plagues generate unreasoning, overwhelming terror that strips away every facade. In its most virulent form, this terror can utterly destroy the very core of what it means to be human. In a blind rage of self-preservation, people do hideous things that would be unthinkable in any other condition. Loving husbands and wives abandon each other. Parents abandon their children and children their parents. Mobs rage and destroy. Fear turns people into beasts. During a plague, the response of brutal self-preservation is so consistent and when you find anyone acting otherwise, it seems almost a miracle. In the year 1665, the Black Death was ravaging London. But in the little village of Eyam, spelled E-Y-A-M, nestled in the fields of Derbyshire, England, the big city and its horrors seemed far away. 350 people lived quietly there, and the church was the center of their lives. They had a new young pastor in this village, William Montpesson, and their old pastor, Thomas Stanley, had remained to help in the transition. No one knew exactly how the Black Death was spread, but everyone was certain that person-to-person -person contact much have, must have much to do with it. No one in Iam had personal contact with any Londoners, so they felt relatively safe. George Vickers was the tailor of Iam. In late August, he received one of his regular shipments of cloth from London. The material was damp, so he spread it out to dry. In doing so, he released fleas. Flea bites were a common nuisance in that day, so when George was bitten, he thought little of it. Within a week, he was dead. When the village realized that the plague had come, there was panic. The first tendency of everyone was to escape from the town to save their lives and the lives of their families. But very quickly, there came a second realization. There was no plague in any of the surrounding villages. If they escaped into them, very likely they would be taking death along. As the dying continued on, the pastors called for a town meeting. Everyone gathered at the church. Together, these brave men and women made an amazing decision. They would not run. For the good of the neighboring villages, they would stay. 
quarantining themselves until the plague ran its course. And this they did. Nearby villages left food and other necessities at the edge of the town on a stone called the Cool Stone. Money that had been soaked in vinegar was left in payment. For the next 14 months, the bubonic plague decimated the little village of Aim. Church services were held outside in an attempt to mitigate infection, and no longer were there communal burials. Families became responsible for their own burials, and these were not in the churchyard. Victims were interred next to their homes. How the plague struck was without known logic. For instance, in eight days, Elizabeth Hancock buried her six children and her husband, but she herself was never infected. The young pastor lost his wife, but he lived. The stories of loss during those 14 months are heartrending. Emot Sedal and Roland Torrey were lovers. Roland was from a nearby village. During the plague, they would meet at the edge of town and call to each other across the rocks. Then one day, Roland waited for her, but Emot did not appear. She never came again. Finally, the plague ended. Out of 350 people, only 83 were left alive but the surrounding villages remained plague-free. For 14 months, these brave people faced both fear and death to save the lives of others. With broken hearts, they buried their loved ones outside their houses as they cried out to God. Where did these villagers get the strength to do all this? I believe it was because their eyes were set on a city that is not made with hands. In them was true Christian faith. You can visit I'm today. It's known as the Plague Village. Uh, there's a little museum and a walking tour uh, that meanders past the old graves. On those fading tombstones, you can barely read the names of babies and little children, old people and lovers. I'm is a monument to selfless Christian courage. I believe that we are living in the terrible plague years that the Bible calls the last days. There is a great plague that has only begun to ravage the world. And that plague is fear in all of its forms. And it can take many forms. We can see it in mindless terror, in despair, in rage, in depression, in worry, anxiety, and distrust. Can you feel it? Can you feel it in the world around you? The virus is growing by the hour. So I have a question for us as we begin this study in the new year. How much does this plague of fear control you? I want to be quick to say that experiencing fear is entirely normal. But does fear in one, of one or more of its virulent forms reign as king in your life? There are many indicators that the plague of fear is in control. Addictions, a sense of hopelessness, lack of self-respect, a deep insecurity, unreasoning and uncontrolled anger, selfishness, covetousness, arrogance and disdain, yes, even habitual laziness. All of these and more can be indicators that the heart of your life, the plague of fear, is in control. They're indicators of something else as well. No matter what we may say about our belief in Jesus and his kingdom, when fear is in control, it shows where our true citizenship lies. It shows that the disease of this world is slowly destroying us. And very likely we're passing that infection along to others, especially the people we love. 1 John 4, 17-19 says this, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Here's what John is saying. Because of Jesus and his forgiveness, we don't need to fear at the ultimate moment when our lives end and God judges everything we have done. And he's going to do that, you know, even our idle words. Not only will we not be afraid, he's saying we will be bold because we are in the center of God's love through Jesus Christ. Now that's amazing. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can cast both soul and body in hell. That is God himself. Because of God's love, we don't have to be afraid of that ultimate terror. And if we're not afraid of that ultimate terror, we don't have to be afraid of anything. I will tell you that the bricks and mortar of Hollywood are made of fear. 
people are afraid of failing. They're afraid of rejection. They're afraid of losing whatever it, whatever it is they've gained. Afraid of what their peers will think and say about them and their work. Fear controls the creativity of the people of Hollywood. And this is one of the most creative places on earth. What would it be like if all fear could be removed here? When there is no fear, there is true freedom. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no fear. What freedom to create there must be there. The more powerful and successful anyone becomes in the entertainment industry, the more fear hangs over them. Often that fear is expressed through anger, and the infection spreads, ever, spreads everywhere. The God of this world, the prince of this world, the prince of darkness, maintains control through fear, while the God of heaven casts out fear with his perfect love. Which God is in control of you? The truth is that most of the time, we aren't even aware that the disease of fear is in us. Our society wants us to believe that fear in so many of its forms is quite normal. In fact, it's necessary. Fear is at the heart of consumerism. And obviously, consumerism is the key to the American dream. You can't be happy outside the American dream, so you can't be happy without a healthy dose of fearful coveting. That's the heart of what it's about. So often, fear and insecurity are at the heart of our drive to succeed, especially here in Hollywood. Of course, if fear gets too debilitating, we're encouraged to go for therapy to help us cope. But we don't need to just cope, do we? What we need is healing from it. We need an antidote to the disease of vaccine to protect us. We need something to save our lives. Now the Christian church in America ought to have that life-saving vaccine. It has had it in the past. But something is desperately wrong in the church today. People go to church, they feel good at worship, they're involved in small groups of Christian friends for fellowship, they read millions of the right books, and go to the right seminars, they watch the right TV programs. With great seriousness, they play the American cultural game of being a good Christian, voting like good Christians should, and all the rest, and it isn't working. If anything, the plague of terror is growing, and it's growing inside the church itself. The proof of this is everywhere. Across the United States, in spite of the mega churches and their millions, in spite of celebrity pastors, in spite of vast Christian marketing machines to help churches grow, the church is dying. Young people are leaving the faith by the droves. Marriages are imploding, creating a huge class of heartbroken and angry people. Trusted pastors are crashing and burning in moral disasters, leaving behind wrecked and disillusioned congregations, and on and on. All of this is evidence that our citizenship is in the kingdom of this world, not in the kingdom of heaven. We need a new view of reality. We need a new view of God's kingdom. And that new view starts with a very, very boring word. And that boring word is disciple. How boring is that word? I, you know, in my entire life in the church, I don't think I've ever heard more talk about discipleship than I am hearing now. The word has become a cliché. With all the talk, it is entirely possible uh, in the American Christianity of the 21st century to participate in activities, their so-called discipleship activities, almost all of our lives and never become true disciples of Jesus. That is an eternal tragedy. And I believe it is the major reason why the church is failing and Christians are unprepared for the days that are about to come. The word disciple, as it relates to Jesus, is the most dangerous, exciting, demanding and rewarding word in the entire world. It is the key to unlocking the glory, the joy, the power, and the reality of the kingdom of heaven in your life. The Greek word that is used for disciple in our language is found in the New Testament doesn't mean someone who just sits and listens. A true disciple was one who had chosen to pattern his whole life after the life of his teacher. So his study and learning was in order for him to accomplish that lifelong objective. And it meant spending a lot of time with that teacher, years and years. Now that goes against everything in American culture, where we have the attention span of schizophrenic gnats, where we are told that to be self-actualized, to put a little Maslow in here, we need to be our own persons, we need to make our own decisions. 
The number one priority is doing whatever we want to please ourselves. So to be a true disciple of Jesus means going against much of our culture, even the culture of the church, which to a very large degree has lost any concept of discipleship. Last October, we ended by saying that when we consider becoming a disciple of Jesus, three decisions need to be made. But these three decisions are built on one great initial decision. That great initial decision is asking Jesus to forgive our sins, and in doing so, placing our entire trust in his sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. His amazing act of love on the cross justifies us before God and his eternal law. When we place our faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, as far as God is concerned, it's as though we have never sinned even once in our lives. He views us through the perfection of Jesus, his son. We are sanctified, washed clean, made holy by the blood that he shed for us on the cross. Jesus becomes our advocate, our high priest. We're placed in a new position. We become new creatures, part of a new creation. Our names are written in the book of life, and not a single person can enter into the kingdom of heaven unless his or her name is written in that book. So the first great decision is to get on our knees before the king of eternity and ask his forgiveness. Ask him to be our savior, to save us from the just penalty of our sins. When that takes place, it is the moment of greatest joy. But it isn't supposed to stop there. And for so many people, that's exactly where it does stop. It's as though they're born as new spiritual babies. They grow into spiritual toddlerhood. But then amazingly, they remain at that point of arrested development for all the years that they have left to live. Consequently, our churches and homes are filled with big, bloated spiritual babies who have little concern for anything but their own needs. And everyone around these good Christians is miserable. The church desperately tries to cater to them because if they don't cater to them, they will leave the church and find somewhere else that does. A couple of obvious facts about babies. They're easily frightened and they're particularly vulnerable to disease in many ways. Do you want to stop being a spoiled baby, constantly crying for someone to change your spiritual and emotional diapers? The way to maturity is to become a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, he does not make it easy Listen to his words in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, and If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who greets him or comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do you think he meant that? I mean, let's be serious about this. Could he really mean those words? What is Jesus saying? It's uncomfortably clear. He's saying, don't talk about being my disciple if you don't intend to obey me and go wherever I lead. And being my disciple will call into question every one of your values. Are you willing to forsake everything that is most precious to you? If there's anything that you love more than you love me, being my disciple won't work. Those are some of the hardest words that have ever been spoken. And Jesus doesn't dangle lots of little rewards in front of us. Quite the opposite. He promises suffering. In Matthew 10, 24 to 39, he says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach in the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, 
Whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Not one of us has the strength to do it in ourselves. Is this what you want? People talk about discipleship. They talk about being disciples. Is there something in your heart that draws you toward Jesus in this kind of a relationship? You know, it's the only antidote, the only vaccine that will destroy the plague of fear in our lives and in this world. Now, I know a lot about the plague of fear personally. All the way back when I was in my mid-20s, Carol took me to the emergency room one day because I thought I was having a heart attack. It was a panic attack, which I had never heard of. I'd never heard of these things before. And it was quite embarrassing when it went away after I started breathing into a paper bag. It was ignominious. I had free-floating anxiety. Why? Why? Because things weren't working the way I wanted them to. Being a disciple of Jesus is the only place where healing of the Spirit can be found. Yet after hearing Jesus' words, the very idea of being a disciple is terrifying, isn't it? If I become a disciple, what's he going to require of me? What will I become? What will happen to my family? Will he send me someplace I don't want to go? And Jesus doesn't answer any of that in advance. All he says is, do you trust me to know what's best for you? Now, saying yes to that question that Jesus asks and meaning it is the first step towards spiritual adulthood. But what a hard step it is because everything inside of us says, no one knows what's best for me but me. That's exactly what a two-year-old thinks, isn't it? And the kingdom of this world has a vested interest in keeping you both spiritually and emotionally at two years old. Anyone who teaches about these things had better be very, very honest. I know how difficult this first step is because I've lived through it. As many of you know, I grew up in a strong Christian home. My father was a professor of Bible, a theologian, and a man of God. From my earliest years, my mother taught me about the Lord. And in my family, I became a baby Christian. But as with so many, it stopped there. I believed in Jesus, but even as a child, I learned to lead a double life. Around adults outside my family, I could look like the most wonderful kid. Polite, very knowledgeable about the Bible. As a child, I won contests about biblical knowledge. I knew all the right things to say to make good Christians think well of me. Uh, but inside... I was all wrong. I developed a whole set of comfortable and very useful sins that I carefully guarded and nurtured. For instance, I became a skillful liar. Probably that led me to my early love of acting. No, that, <laughs> wipe that out, <laughs> wipe that out. <laughs> Spoken as a producer, right? I mean, no, no. Of course, there, there was a minor downside to all this. Dependence on my useful sins led me to unhappiness, anger, and self-destructive activities, which only grew worse when I became a teenager. So on the one hand, I was playing the Christian game, going to church and youth groups and sounding spiritual. Carol and I met as seniors in high school, and she says she was drawn to me at the very beginning, but she, she heard me pray in a youth group. And did I ever sound good? Oh, ah, the poor woman. On the other hand, I was running from God. And though certainly I wouldn't have admitted it, that was the truth. I wanted Jesus as a fire escape to keep me from hell. I wanted acceptance in the Christian community because I knew that there were tangible benefits in that. But I didn't want Jesus to run my life. I'd uh, have to give up my useful and pleasurable sins. The longer you live with your useful and pleasurable sins, the more you grow to hate them, 
yet, ironically, the more afraid you are of giving them up. I discovered that. That is called addiction. I didn't want to follow Jesus too closely because sin was woven so deep, I didn't want the pain of having it torn out. So I led a spiritually schizophrenic life. Sounding good without being good. Being bad, but cautiously and carefully bad. Not overtly bad enough to destroy the image that I wanted to project. I wanted Jesus, but in just the right controllable amounts. Unfortunately, he doesn't like that. The schizophrenia continued into adulthood. Now, dimly in my heart, I knew that somewhere ahead there was a fork in the road and that Jesus was standing there waiting for me. And more than anything, I didn't want to hit that fork. I knew how to run my life. I wanted a straight road to success. No forks. I was sure nothing God had for me could be better than what I had planned for myself. In fact, I was rather certain that his plans would be truly ugly and unsatisfying. Uh, he'd make me into a raging fanatic who had to live in a jungle somewhere. Fear and the selfishness that goes with it take away your ability to see reality. I had lied to myself for so long that I'd actually learned how to spiritualize the lies and give them an aura of false holiness that I thought was real. Now that is sophisticated lying. Let me give you an illustration. At a certain point in my 20s, I was fired from a job. I'd never been fired from a job before. Boy, that's changed over the years. Um, it put my family in crisis. We needed money. Very quickly, another job offer came that entailed our moving from Virginia all the way across the country to, the, to California. Like a good Christian, I threw up a prayer about it. Uh, you can think of it as kind of crisis vomit praying. Uh, disturbingly, I got the distinct feeling that I shouldn't take that job. But that is not the answer that I wanted. Even worse, the feeling did not go away. I needed that job. It was the only thing on the horizon. I had to be practical. So what does a good Christian spiritual schizophrenic do? Well, pray harder till you get God to agree with your plans. Uh, though I rarely prayed on any serious level, this time I took a whole day to pray and fast. That is heavy duty. And I experienced a predictable, spiritually schizophrenic miracle. At the end of my fast, I had prayed myself right into a sinful, disobedient, selfish choice. God had changed his mind. It was clear he approved what I wanted. With that quiet security, I took the job. We moved across the country. Six months later, the whole company went down the toilet. Uh, we had to move back across the country to Illinois. My family suffered with me. I call it now the California vomit prayer. Um, oh God, I'm terrified. Please rubber stamp my selfish desires and give me just what I want because I really need it right now. If you've ever prayed a prayer like that, you're part of the California Vomit, Vomit Prayer Group. Amazingly, after that awful self-inflicted experience, and that's what it was, I was angry at God. Now, think about that. Yes, I was very angry at him, and I think he deserved it. The whole career that I had planned for myself had gone down the drain, and I knew that he was the one who was responsible for this. What kind of God was he anyway? I was a spoiled, selfish baby. And the fork in the road was getting closer. God is good. He is so filled with patience and mercy and grace. It was in the middle of my anger that I really began to meet Jesus in a way that I never had before. But it was a very slow process. It began when anger, I just sort of, in anger, I threw my life at God and said, okay, fine, you won't let me do anything with my life, so you do something with it. Uh, he took me seriously. Having no other choice at this period of my life, I went back to a university and took a course in the history of film. Each week we saw one of the great films of the past, and over and over a question began to haunt me. Where are the Christians in this amazing business? Where are the people who belong to me? And the, the question came to me, should I be involved in some way in this? I'd never even considered anything like this before. But if I am to be involved, but how? How can I do it? I have no money. I have no film equipment. Well, I had paper. 
And that was when I began to discover screenwriting. This was 1975. No one was talking about screenwriting as a, as a career. That was insane. No one I had ever heard of had even tried to go to Hollywood. I was living in Illinois, so I wrote my first screenplay. In the middle of that writing, another life-changing event happened. My father died. Through all of this, I was taking baby steps of faith, stumbling and staggering toward what I didn't know. God opened doors. My writing got positive responses. We moved again to California so I could go to USC grad school. To support my family, I found a job as a marketing director with a horrible company in Woodland Hills. The owner was a very evil man. He was so evil that eventually his wife murdered him. Um, it's true. After a year, yeah, that's bad. You got a bad, you got a bad dude. You know, it's true. After a year in that company, the job ended unexpectedly, though I didn't know it. I had reached the fork in the road. It was the summer of 1978. At USC, I had written my first professional script. I had an agent of sorts, Carol and I, and our three kids had enough money to last for three or four months. So clearly, God was going to open the door to a career in Hollywood within that time frame. Isn't the way, that's the way he always works, isn't it? That was what I had, and that's what he would do. The months passed. Summer began, turned into fall, and nothing happened. People read my script and liked it, but no one bought it. Our money was running out. This called for drastic measures. I had to get God off the dime. And so once again, I decided to do something really spiritual. I decided to fast until he sold a script. Doesn't that sound like a good plan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Well, this was the fork in the road, my friends. And it was a long fork. The fast lasted for nine days. It's a good thing I didn't continue until I sold a script because that was over a year yet in the future. I would have been really skinny. My first script didn't sell for a long time. And, but during that fast, I began to seek Jesus in a way that I never had before. I began to want to follow Jesus, and I crashed into these words, Matthew 6, 31 and 34, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry, do not be afraid about tomorrow. You see, I'd grown up in the church, but in all the first 34 years of life, I hadn't ever really consciously known anyone who was living on the cutting edge of faith, the edge where you have to depend on God for each day's supply. Oh, I knew people uh, had lived like that in the past. There were missionaries who were probably living that way now, and I knew many wonderful Christian people. I just didn't know anyone who was living with this kind of insane faith, and to me it was insane. Well, I broke my nine-day fast with a Big Mac. I would not recommend that. It creates a whole new cleansing experience. But I came out of that fast with a sense that Jesus was really interested in my life, and he was going to lead me and my family as a shepherd and provide for us. But it was a shaky sense, and it had to be tested. I had to learn by experience. At the end of 1978, several things happened. I was asked to teach a weekly Bible study in Beverly Hills in the home of two people who became dear friends, Al and Seal Kasha. Uh, you know, I, I'd been told a lot of things about so-called networking when I was at USC. Not one single thing I ever tried to do in networking to push myself forward made any difference at all. But teaching that Bible study where I wasn't trying to network, just give people what I could in Jesus' name, God used ultimately as the foundation for my career. But as I said, it was a long fork in the road. The second thing that happened at the end of 1978 was that our money ran out. God began teaching me in the most excruciating way what it means to trust in him for all of our needs. During all of 1979, I earned a total of $200. And even back then, that was not much money. How did we make it? family with three children. Miracles. God provided Carol with a part-time job as the manager of a senior citizen feeding program. 
There were many, many days when our evening meal was the leftover food from that day's senior lunch. Humbling. That year drove me to my knees in prayer, which is where God wanted to me to be all along. I don't have time to tell you all the miracles that we saw during that year. Amazing things that God showed he was really there. In the months ahead, probably we'll talk about some of those things. It was an uncomfortable year, often a terrifying year. His hand at work that year changed my life. I had to be brought to the end of myself and my own stupidity so that God could show me what, what being a disciple of Jesus really meant. The year of the fork in the road. All of that was many years ago. In the 32 years since then, what a journey it has been following Jesus through the entertainment industry. As I look back, I'm so thankful that God did not allow me to have what I so desperately wanted, my pitiful little plans for me. During those 32 years, as, I, as it says in Psalm 27, I have seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. With many battles come many blessings. Along with my share of hopes and dreams unrealized have come many amazing doors that have opened. And God's goodness continues. I would not trade being Jesus' disciple for all the success and wealth and security in the world. Probably there are several groups of people here in this room tonight or listening over the internet. Some of you may not know Jesus at all. As I said, the first step to ask is to ask him to forgive your sins and be your Lord and Savior, but probably most of us have done that. There's a second group. I think tonight there may be many of people in this room who have made such disasters of their lives, have been hurt so many times, and have hurt other people. Uh, there are so many of us who have crashed and burned so many times, so many doors have slammed shut in our faces, we've banged our heads on those doors so often that we're bloody. The result is that we've almost given up hope. Do not Give up on the Lord. In spite of all, choose to be his disciple. He is still your shepherd and he loves you. Rather than giving up hope, let all that you have experienced bring you to your knees in prayer so that you can find and give forgiveness. In that discipline of prayer, lay every hope and dream and desire on the altar before him. Every day, renew your commitment to love and follow him no matter where he leads then actually do it. Follow him and watch for strange, unpredictable doors to open. And let me make a suggestion. Lay aside the popular American Christian idea of being called to this or that. How many times I've heard people say that they are called to work in Hollywood. They say, I'm called to write, I'm called to direct. Many years ago, I mean, I, I've, I've heard this over so many years, you know, I, I, I literally, it has boggled me. I know a whole slew of people who were so sure God was calling them to Hollywood, and those people are all gone. Oswald Chambers says that the call of God is not to a particular service. He's right. There's one call in the New Testament, and it is given to each one of us. The call is the invitation to have a personal relationship of trust and love with the God of the universe. That call is expressed by Jesus in the words, follow me. Follow me into a deeper and deeper relationship in which you will be transformed. Follow me as I live my life through you so that we can show the world who God really is. Through your life, I want to spread my life to others. As far as where you are placed or how I will use you, trust me for that. Follow wherever I lead, whether it fits in with your dreams and desires, whether it fits in with what you consider your gifts or it doesn't. Look for my open doors because the doors that I open can't be shut. The doors that I shut can't be open. Like a child, follow me. Trust in me and don't be afraid. You know, as our love for Jesus grows, our desire to use the gifts and abilities that he has given us in order to please him will grow as well. It's normal to look for places where we think our abilities and our gifts can be used, but there's a subtle trap in that. It is very easy to start focusing on the gifts instead of the giver. It is very easy to establish our own agenda for how those gifts need to be used. That will lead to fear, anger, and I assure you, your own version of the California vomit prayer. Where will Jesus lead you? 
into the place that he has prepared for you to co-labor with him in his great work in the world. Where is he going? Into all the world to preach the good news of eternal salvation from sin. He knows what he made you for. You don't. You know, that has been a challenge for me to get through my skull. The only way we can find out what he made us for is to lay aside our dreams, our plans, and even our ideas about our gifts and be willing to follow him no matter what. You know, we started the evening reading those chapters in Hebrews about all the great heroes of the faith who didn't know where God was leading but followed anyway. Just as for them, that is what faith means for you and me. That's the beginning of discipleship. Remember those three decisions that need to be made if we're going to be Jesus' disciples? Last October, we mentioned the first one. No matter what may come, I will not be offended by what Jesus does or doesn't do for me. No matter what may come, I will not be ashamed of him. That was the first decision. We talked about that in October. Here's the second decision. To be Jesus' disciple, I will seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness above anything else. What does that mean? So that we've talked about the beginning of that process. We'll talk more about it next month. For me, a lot had to be stripped away before I began to understand what that kind of seeking is really about. And that stripping away, that learning, and that seeking continues for me right now. You know, there's one last group that I'd like to speak to for a moment as we close. There are people here tonight, perhaps listening on the Internet, who have been following the Lord for many years as his disciples. It hasn't been easy. There have been so many hopes and dreams that have been committed to him and remain unfulfilled. You've struggled hard. Your faith has been tested and tried. Though you know Jesus is there and you've experienced his love, very often it still seems as though you're walking in darkness. Don't stop following the glow of his footsteps. Don't give up hope in him. Your faith has been tried and tested over many years, and it's of amazing eternal value. I love the famous quote by the Victorian English poet Robert Browning. Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? When we walk following Jesus as his disciples, our reach of faith and our grasp, our vision, should always exceed our grasp. And whatever we don't have the strength to grasp in this world will be reached and grasped in the kingdom of heaven. Are you at a fork in the road of your life? Very often those are difficult, sometimes heartbreaking places to be. But you're not alone. If I can be of help to you, please write to me. My email is colemanluck at gmail.com. History had a beginning and it will have an end. Are you ready to meet the king? He's waiting at the ultimate crossroad of your life.